0: Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning, welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. Jesus Christ is present at Mass in four distinct ways. He is present in the assembly, in the community gathered. He is present in His Word. He is pr- in the Word that is proclaimed. He is present in His priest, through whom He, Christ the Priest, works. But most profoundly, He is present in the most blessed sacrament in the Holy Eucharist. Today, I dive into the gift of Christ as Eucharist coming close to us. I hope and pray that that's a blessing and it revives and awakens a deeper love, a deeper entry into and participation in the Mass. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in Today, I'm gonna talk about the presence of Jesus at mass that is as Eucharist. So I wanna focus on a couple of ways for us to foster a deeper capacity to recognize the presence of Jesus Christ, the personal presence of the risen Lord Jesus, the living presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives in a remote way. What's the first one? The first one is called solitude, solitude. How many times do you remember hearing in the scriptures that Jesus, after some extended period of ministry activity, he would go off by himself to pray? Go up the mountain to pray, go off all night and pray. He would seek times of solitude. Now, solitude is not the same as isolation. Solitude is not the same as isolation. Simply put, isolation is being alone by yourself, solitude is being alone with God. Isolation is deadening. When you are alone by yourself, you feel cut off. You feel no sense of connection, no sense of communion, no sense of communication. Solitude is stepping apart from others in order to be alone with God and being alone with God in order to foster that bond of connection, the quality and depth of communion and communication with God. So solitude is an important spiritual discipline. I think it's one that our contemporary uh, society, the society in which we live, this moment in history, doesn't know how to relate well to solitude. In fact, we more quickly identify the idea of being alone with isolation. But because we lack solitude, do you know what we'll discover? If we lack a sense of solitude, being alone with God, then we'll discover that we can experience isolation even in the midst of others. And maybe isolation in its most painful form when we're in the midst of others. Do you want to see the most isolated people you'll probably ever see? Go to a nightclub. Never will you see so many people so packed together, cut off from authentic communion and communication. So to learn again solitude. Well, in the scriptures, where does solitude occur? often it occurs, guess what? In the desert. Now we think of the desert, we think of places like the Exodus or Jesus in the desert. And what happens in the desert? There's purification, there's cleansing, there is learning obedience, there is spiritual battle, there is times of testing, trial, temptation. We think of the desert as a place somehow to avoid or we only go there if we need to. That's, there is a dimension of the desert that involves all of those things in the scripture. But in the scripture, the desert is also the place of solitude. It's the place of communing with God. When you're in the desert, what's there to do? Not a whole lot. Who's there to talk to? Well, nobody but God because it's often the stripping down and cleansing of the things that are around us, activities, the people even that are around us, that can clutter, clutter the space that God asks of us if we will commune with him. It says in the scriptures in Hosea, that I will draw her to myself in the desert. I will draw my child to myself and there I will speak to her heart. There I will speak to his heart. So solitude is a very important place where we will be disposing ourselves, readying ourselves, setting ourselves up for the knock. On the door of our hearts, the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll commune with him. Do we want to recognize the knocking on the door of the hearts, the doors of our hearts of Jesus Christ, who each day is seeking you out? Now, solitude, if it's going to be entered into, has a twin. The twin of solitude is silence if we are going to come apart from ordinary activities, come apart from ordinary relationships, day-to-day relationships, I mean, come apart from the typical things that can t- uh, have, a, have as a possibility of crowding out our life, if we're going to set apart time to be alone with God, we need to also learn the spiritual discipline of silence. Silence. In fact, at Mass... In the liturgy, we discover that there are moments of sacred silence. Sacred silence. It's spaces in the liturgy that are intended to be set apart for silence. Now, the sadness of our moment is that we equate silence with emptiness. In our tradition, silence is not associated with absence. Silence is associated with presence. Silence is not associated with absence, like it's a space that needs to be filled up and we're awkward, It's because our moment in history doesn't know how to deal with silence. We must fill all our time and space with noise. Fill it up with noise. Can you drive in your car without the radio on? Can you have your house have no noise in it? TV on in the background, radio, music, something going on. Something to fill the space because if the space isn't filled with some kind of noise, it is empty. This is not our tradition. Listen to a, this is sort of a spiritual principle, but it's actually a philosophical idea as well. In silence, presence becomes manifest. Uh, Almost every single night before I go to bed, I'll do the circuit around the bedrooms to just look in on each of my kids. And... How often will I, you know, how common is it? And and you probably have had this experience of coming in to look on someone you love who's asleep. Someone you love who's asleep. And so I can remember one time when I was looking at Luciana in her crib. And there she was. And I just stood in silence, gazing with love upon Luciana. And what emerged in me was she's laying at a 45 degree angle vis-a-vis the edge of the crib. No, that's not what I said. (laughs) No. What did I say in silence? Presence becomes manifest. Standing in silence with love, gazing upon, not saying or thinking or analyzing, not trying to scientifically pick apart, but being present before the one I love, all of a sudden gives permission, gives space for the one I love to show up to have the hidden dimension, the hidden dimension of the person she is, the beauty, the uniqueness, the, the special quality of Luciana that only Luciana in all of history has. luciana showed up. Why? I gave her space. I gave her time. Did I make it show up? Can I cause that to show up? No. I have to, with loving reverence, merely be present and await the coming out into the open of what is maybe, in the busyness of day to day, ordinarily hidden. The precious gift of that unique child of God who is my child, Luciana in silence the hidden dimension can come out into the open i want you to know that jesus christ has something in his heart hidden that he wants to share with you that jesus christ himself is present in your day present in the events of your day, presence in the people you're going to meet, every single one of them. But he might be so well hidden that unless you are present, unless you are open and receptive, Jesus Christ won't be showing up. It's in silence. It's in that receptive stance of loving gaze, of respect, that I'm going to be open to receive the revelation of what was hidden. That's the importance of silence. And yet our moment in history completely devalues silence. The only value I can think of that is given to silence today is as a means of getting recovered so that you can go back into the noise. Got it? Like, you need some silence. Why? Well, otherwise, you won't be able to dive back into all the other activities you're doing. We have it so backwards. So backwards. The Lord's Day, when we are required to go to Mass, the Lord's Day is a day of rest. It's a day set apart for the Lord. And the theology of the Sabbath the theology of the Lord's Day is not take Sunday off so that you'll work well on Monday through Saturday. But rather, it's work hard Monday through Saturday so that you can live Sunday well. Did you get that? We have it completely backwards. Sunday is a day of rest that somehow is used for the sake of the rest of the week, when in fact, real life, the most profound depths of our life are lived on Sunday as we gather a community at Eucharist, at the sacred liturgy, in order to worship the Lord on his holy day. That's my first and most fundamental relationship. This is my deepest identity. This is where my life really is. This is where my life is really centered. This is the source and the summit and the center of my life of faith and of my deepest identity. And I want to live that well. And in order to live that well, I need silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. To bring to bear At Mass. Remember the goal. I am at Mass to give God thanks and praise. I am at Mass to give God thanks and praise. But we also learned that God has purposes. God has purposes. And one of the purposes that we learned yesterday, I'm sorry, two days ago, was that the Lord gathers his people... Because he wants us to sit down. He wants to have a word with us. And so we reflected on that. How he wants to speak the word to our lives. Speak the word to our hearts that we most need to hear. Now we're going to discover something even more. Even more than the Lord wants to be present. As word that can be like that sword two-edged sword that can pierce into the hearts and, and, and enlighten our conscience, enlighten us in the depths of our beings, he now wants to do more. He wants to come to us as the bread of life, as the bread from heaven. And he wants to feed us. So we're going to explore this. We're going to dig into how this shows up. In the Mass. Now, in the liturgy of the the Eucharist, we just came through the Eucharistic prayer. Remember the great amen? Now we enter into what's called the rite of communion. R-I-T-E. The ritual of communion. And remember, what's the principle? Pay attention. Pay attention to what's showing up. Pay attention to the manner of its appearing. Pay attention to the order of its appearing. One of the things that shows up now is the location where we are. Okay, let me, let me dig into that a little bit. So far at Mass, when we focus on the presence of Jesus in the assembly, in the community that's gathered, recognizing Christ present in the community also brings out into the open something that is so often hidden from most Catholics who come to mass. That is that at mass, earth is drawn where? Up to heaven. So there's a vertical dimension of awareness. And so that's one level of awareness that we carry with us at mass and should foster. When we focused on the the Eucharistic prayer, on the liturgy of the Eucharist in that first part, at the the high point of the Mass, where we have the ritual of remembrance. Jesus took bread, remember, and we we went through all of that. What did we discover about our being present at the uh, the ordained priest's enactment of what Jesus commands? that when we are present, when the ordained priest celebrates that ritual of remembrance, what is made present to us here as well? A horizontal dimension, a dimension that takes us from the past into the present. What is it that occurred into the past that is drawn into the present at every Mass? It's called the Paschal mystery. The events of what? Jesus' passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So there's a dimension of the past breaking into the present as well. The mass is not a repeating of, some, of killing Jesus over again, but a making present of the one passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so we proclaim the mystery of faith right? What do we proclaim? We proclaim your death, O Lord. We announce your resurrection, and we look forward to your return. We are announcing that we are present at an inbreaking of the past into the present. Well, in the rite of communion, we're going to see highlighted two other dimensions. Guess where we're going to go? If we're not going to go vertically from earth to heaven... And we're not going to go from the past into the present. Guess where we're going to go? From the present into the future. From the present into the future. There's going to be a future reality that breaks into the present at mass. Wow, this is a lot to keep in mind. This is a lot to hold in our minds. This is a lot to recognize. What is that future reality? that is made present, the future reality is the heavenly banquet, the wedding feast of the lamb, the very destiny that is ours. We get to taste it here and now. That which we are headed towards comes towards us and breaks in here and now. Okay, but there's one other dimension, and this is the dimension that is highlighted right now in the rite of Holy Communion. It's this, that we who are present in a way that brings earth to heaven, we who are present in a way that brings the past into the present, we who are present in a way that brings the future into the present are, guess what? Walking in the present. We're living right now. Do you remember the meaning of the procession of the priest at the beginning of mass? What's the meaning of the procession of the priest? Hey, folks, we're not home. We are on the way. We're on a journey. We're heading somewhere. This is what the rite of communion brings out. What's the first thing we do in the rite of communion? We pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of the people of God who are on the way we're not yet home. We're not yet at our heavenly destiny. And so what do we ask for in the Lord's prayer? Give us this day our daily bread, our daily bread. And that term daily bread in Greek actually has a connotation of heavenly bread. It has a connotation of, of not just the bread I need today, because that would be give us this day our bread. So give us this day our daily bread. It's that, that adjective daily that actually has a meaning in Greek of heavenly, of something that is, is beyond merely the concept of the bread that we need right now. It's pretty striking. And so one of the reasons why we pray the Lord's Prayer is to help us remember that even though we're tasting the worship of heaven while we're at Mass, we're not yet home. We're not yet home. And so we need daily bread. We need bread from heaven to live as God's children here and now. What happens after we pray this prayer for our daily bread? Listen, deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil, well, if we were caught up in the heavens and worship, we don't need to pray deliverance from evil. If we were already in our heavenly destiny, we wouldn't need to pray deliverance from evil. But we need that. The Lord meets us in the concrete circumstances of our here, now, and today. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy, we may always be free from sin and safe from all distress as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our savior, Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. Jesus, you've broken in, you're here and you're present, but we need you to be with us as we continue on our way. We in the mass are acknowledging that God is the living God who sees exactly where we're at, exactly what we're facing and he's coming towards us to bless us. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. We move then to what's called the sign of peace. Now the sign of peace, this is one of those gestures at mass that again is is kind of maybe just going through the motions, right? The quality of your recognition is made manifest by your response. Stop and think about it. Why do this? Why have the act, the gesture of a sign of peace? Do you know why we do that? Well, its roots are in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, if you are coming to the altar to present your gift and you realize, listen, and you realize that someone has something against you, don't present your gift to the altar yet. Go and be reconciled and then come and present your gift before we come to the altar to receive the Prince of Peace, we have a duty. We are being called to recognize that there are people with whom we are not at peace. Is there anyone in your life with whom you are not at peace? Yes, indeed, there are. Are there anybody in your life that is not at peace with you? Yes, indeed, there are. Well, the sign of peace is somehow meant to be an opportunity for us to address that. How could that be? The person I'm not at peace with, Uncle Hank. Uncle Hank teased me mercifully when I was a younger man, and I resent him. He treated me badly, and I don't wish him well, but I want to receive you, Jesus, in Holy Communion. I want to receive you, O Prince of Peace. The sign of peace is meant to be, for me, an opportunity to extend a hand, to extend a sign of my desire to be at peace with Uncle Hank. Well, Uncle Hank is in Boston. I'm not. I'm 3,000 miles away. By the way, I don't have an Uncle Hank, okay? Don't worry. (laughs) I'm not trying to get back at Uncle Hank. But how can I possibly get to be at peace with Uncle Hank when he's 3,000 miles away? Peace be with you. What's your name? Lee. Lee. Peace be with you. Lee, am I wishing you peace? Yes but can Lee also stand for those who are in my life with whom I am not at peace? Yes, indeed. All of a sudden there's a drama that's occurring at every act of the sign of peace. Will you be extending a hand of peace to those with whom You are not at peace. St. Augustine put it this way. You only love Jesus as much as you love that person that you love the least in this world. So the sign of peace can be a profound moment for conversion and for healing if we're willing to recognize what's at stake in that moment and respond to it. Or you can just do a sign of peace, peace be with you, amen, peace be with you and also with you, peace be with you and also with you. We can just go through the motions or we can use it as a moment, as an invitation from the Lord to enter into a profound conversion in our lives. After the sign of peace, what's next? The Lamb of God. Okay, the Lamb of God. Wait a minute. Lamb of God. Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus. What's the idea of referring to Jesus during the liturgy, the sacred liturgy, this ritual of remembrance that Jesus establishes as the new and eternal covenant? Oh, wait a minute. Where was that first covenant established? In the Exodus, that covenant at the Exodus where we have a lamb. What was the lamb that was sacrificed? What was that lamb symbolizing? Now, we could take hours and hours to dig into this theology of the, the Passover lamb. I don't have time to do that. I can recommend books like The Lamb Supper by Scott Hahn, if you want to dig further into that. But not only his, there are lots of people who have written about this. But let's try to keep it simple and synthesize things down. Well, for the Jewish people, the, the lamb represented the means by which God would bring about a reconciliation between him and the family that brought the lamb, right? So every family would bring a Passover lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. And that sacrifice of bringing the unblemished lamb would be what? a sign that the family desired to be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of the lamb. It's being set apart for God. It's being made holy. It's being sacrificed through the shed blood of the lamb. There would be the forgiveness of sins for the family who brought that lamb. When they would take the meat of that lamb and they would then prepare it as part of their Passover meal. And when they shared in the supper of the lamb that was sacrificed, shed, the blood shed at the temple, they then would be brought back into peace, brought back into right relationship with God because the forgiveness of sins was brought about through the shedding of the blood. You've heard this before. This makes sense. Every family brings a lamb. Well, Lamb of God, whose family is being represented in this sacrifice? God's family. God brings a lamb to be sacrificed, and the shedding of the blood of his lamb would bring about the reconciliation of. His family. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. God wants to reconcile the entire world with himself and is doing so through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, the Lamb of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is crucified at a different moment than in the other Gospels. Did you know this? Jesus dies on the day of preparation for the Passover. The day of preparation for the Passover at what time? 12 noon. What's happening in the temple at 12 noon on the day of preparation for the Passover? The Passover lambs are being slaughtered. John is saying, pay attention. What you are beholding in Jesus' death on the cross is the sacrifice of God's lamb. The shedding of blood of the innocent, unblemished, sinless lamb of God who shed blood, will take away the sins of the world. But wait a minute. What did the family need to do in order to benefit from, be able to participate in, be able to experience the effects of the shedding of the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed? They had to share in the supper of the lamb. They had to eat of that uh, sacrificed lamb. Wow. Now, all of a sudden, we have a better understanding of the meaning of receiving Holy Communion. We are sharing in the supper of the lamb so that we can share in the benefits of Jesus Christ's act of being sacrificed and of sacrificing himself on the cross so that we could be set free. Does this make sense? This is all part of the ritual, all part of of the liturgy. It's all how it all unfolds. What, what, What does the priest say after we say, Lamb of God, we take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, grant us peace. Behold, He's lifting up the host, the Eucharist. And he's saying, behold the Lamb. Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. At the beginning of the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God. This is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Behold the Lamb of God, who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the lamb. And then what do we say? Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Well, wait a minute. There's that change, right? Why that change to now be referring to a roof and, and, and all of that? Well, well you, you know, you've probably heard by now that this is a what? A recovery of the scriptural reference that this prayer in the liturgy refers to. And so if you wanna be able to say, oh, the, the liturgy is intending to point us to a moment in the scripture, let's capture that scripture as faithfully as possible so that we, we who are speaking this as a response to the presentation of the Lamb of God, we are going to be responding with the appropriate response as we recognize Jesus. Well, wait a minute. When did this happen in scripture? I'm not worthy to have you enter under my roof. Just say the word. And not my soul shall be healed. What, what's the story? Where's this come from? The centurion who has what? A seriously sick servant. Seriously ill servant. And it comes to Jesus and says, "I've at this seriously sick servant. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And what does he say? Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, do you realize what it is the church is asking of us in this moment by putting those words into our mouths? Do you realize it? Do you see it? Do you recognize it? Jesus responds to those words by that centurion in a way that is unique in all the responses he ever gives to anybody in the, in, the, in the Gospels. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. Jesus responds to the one who says that sentence in a way that is unique. He, he responds like this in no other time in the Gospels. In the way that he, he responds, he reacts to the, to the centurion who says this. Do you know what his response was? It says, Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed. Well, amazed at what? Amazed at the faith of the centurion. Well, why amazed at the faith of the centurion? The centurion said, look, I'm a man of authority. I understand that if I say, go here, if they're under my authority, they'll go there. If I say do this, they'll do that. So Jesus, if you say from right here to the sickness that's over there, be gone, my servant is going to be healed. I recognize, I see, I have faith to believe that you have authority over anything happening in my servant's life you have authority over all sickness. You have authority over all disease. You have authority in this world. And I acknowledge that. Just say the word. You don't even have to go and lay hands. Your word has power over what is happening in my life, in my servant's life, that is disturbing that is a result, a consequence of sin or the fallenness of this world, this sickness. What about us? Do you realize what the church is saying to you at this moment? As you speak those words, what's the church saying to you? Amaze Jesus with your faith. Amaze him with the expectation you have regarding what it is he will do. What is it he will do? Well, let's dig in briefly to what the church says will happen, is intended by the Lord, is taught by the church, will happen when we receive Jesus in holy communion. Are you ready? This is one one of the ways that St Thomas Aquinas says it. Propius effectus huius sacramenti est conversio hominum in Christo. Okay, are you ready? The proper effect of receiving holy communion is the transformation of that person into Jesus. Remember I said God has a goal? The Father has a goal when you come to Mass? It's not just to speak a word to you, but it's to turn you into Jesus. It's to transform you into Jesus. What went up to the altar? Bread and wine. What was it symbolizing? You. What did God do to it through the Holy Spirit? Turned it into Jesus. What happens with that reality that used to be bread and is now Jesus? It comes back to you. And in you receiving it, guess what he wants to do? He wants to do in you what he did to that bread. That's what he intends to do. That's his goal for you when you receive Holy Communion. Is that what happens to us? Is that the faith that we have? Is that what we're expecting? I want you to think, as you're receiving Holy Communion, you come out of the pew, you're waiting in line, here you are, and you're approaching the reception of, of Jesus in Holy Communion. How were you praying? Lord, I long for you. Lord, I long to receive you. Lord, what is he doing here this week? Oh, Lord, I love you. Oh, Lord, look at how she's dressed. Oh, Lord, I don't want to go to communion to him. Oh, where are our minds where is our heart do we have a sense of expectation that we're about to have an encounter with Jesus that's personal and profound so profound that it's going to change our lives not just change our lives transform us more fully into Jesus Christ himself Well, if that's what the Lord intends, if what the Lord intends is the pouring out of the very life of God into us in Holy Communion, do we in fact receive that pouring out of God's life into us that will transform us into Christ every time we receive Holy Communion? Will it happen? The church has an answer. So what's the principle that the church will use to help us understand whether or not we're receiving all that Jesus intends to give. Are you ready? Quad recipisti, recipisti, in modo recipientis. What is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. So what does this mean for the reception of Holy Communion? What does Jesus intend? Think of it this way. Jesus intends a waterfall of his life that will come upon you. And that waterfall of his very sanctifying grace that will, that will uh, come into you will fill you to overflowing. His grace will fill you to overflowing every time you receive communion. Now, what is received is received according to the mode of the receiver means if you come up there with a the little Dixie cup, guess what, how much you're going to receive? Filled to overflowing, a Dixie cup full. You come up with your venti cup. How much are you going to receive? Your venti cup is going to be filled to overflowing. 50-gallon drum, that's your faith expectation. Filled to overflowing. You drag up your swimming pool, filled to your canyon, filled to overflowing. You come up and you have your hand over the top. How much do you receive? Nothing. What does Christ intend? To fill you to overflowing with his life. How much will you receive? How much will you receive of what Christ intends? The church keeps it very simple. You receive as much as you expect and deserve. Let's cover the second one first, and then we'll go to the first one. Expect and deserve. Deserve, well, Nobody deserves the Eucharist, it's purely a gift. Absolutely, it's purely a gift. But having been granted access to that gift, we can, guess what? Show up to the feast dressed appropriately or not. We can show up and be ready with our lamps lit when the bridegroom appears, or we can be asleep. Think of the different parables. Where Jesus is talking about, did you ever recognize me when I was hungry and you didn't feed me? Clothe me when I was naked. Visit me when I was in prison. Lord, when did we ever, when you did it to at least of my brothers, you did it to me, right? Jesus again and again is telling us, you've been granted access through faith. You've been granted access through the gift you've been received. To, to receive me in Holy Communion, now live in accord with the dignity and the gifting you have received this is the way that maybe you learned it growing up you only come forward to receive Holy Communion if you are in the state of grace if you're in the state of grace if you're free from serious sin if you're in serious sin you've been granted access because you're a child of God but you now no longer deserve because of what you've done with that gift Go and be reconciled and then come. Come back to the altar and receive the gift. You'll be putting your hand on the top. But it's not just about deserving. Let's say we're in a state of grace. It's also how much we expect. Now, when we say expect, think faith. Faith expectation. Do you have the expectation that in receiving Holy Communion, that you are receiving a living Lord who has the power to heal you. But in receiving Holy Communion, do you realize you're receiving one who has authority over any situation that's happening in your life, over every situation that's happening in your life? Do you expect that the living Lord longs to come in and transform you, heal you, make you whole, bring you salvation, bring you his life, bring you his joy, bring you his peace in a measure that will fill you to overflowing? Do you expect that? Do you long for that? Do you ready yourself for that? Do you prepare yourself for that? Do you dispose yourself for that? Some religious communities would receive communion in, say, in the Middle Ages. They would receive communion not daily, but on special feasts or weekly, and they would fast for days leading up to the mass they would attend where they would receive Holy Communion. Fasting for days in order to cleanse their bodies, in order to ready their spirits, in order to prepare a space to welcome in the King of Kings. If you knew that a very important person was going to come over your house for a, a, for a dinner, the president, the pope, let me just ask, would you clean your house? Yes. Would you make sure you had the best meal you ever had made in that house ready for him? Yes, indeed. Would you make sure that you were dressed and ready for it? Yeah, you get the idea, right? You can play it up, really think it through. It's worth reflecting on. After communion, we have a time to pray, pray in silence, and also pray sometimes in song. I haven't mentioned singing yet, and yet singing is another beautiful reality that shows up at mass. In fact, as we become adults, there's something that we are less likely to do or to do in public than when we're younger. And you know what that is? sing sing do you know what it takes to be able to sing in public when uh you know what does it take just generally speaking to to have that 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 sense of saying i will sing in public it's not a good voice i have proof of that it's this hilarity i'm not taking myself too seriously it's this sense of freedom It's this sense of not focusing on myself. It's this sense of, I have something to sing about. I have someone to sing to. I'm kind of coming out of myself in order to be able to sing with full voice, with full freedom. I'm coming out of myself. Not only that, but what is it doing? Singing has a very beautiful way of elevating the power of language. Singing is so often described as the mode of communication in heaven. Even philosophically, the ancients would talk about the celestial spheres making their orbit around the course of the sky. And they would talk about it, the harmony and the order and the the sense of movement as music. It's the music of the spheres. So there's, there's something that is beyond the earth that is evoked through singing. And Of course, there's always that famous quote from St. Augustine, the one who sings, prays twice. Well, then at the end of the Mass, after we have a chance to receive Holy uh, Communion and we have that time of, of silence in Mass, we then have a prayer after communion and then after the prayer we have a dismissal the concluding rite, and once again the priest takes up his role the distinct role he has as this presider in whom christ is present in a distinct way when he says the lord be with you and we say and with your spirit once again recognizing christ lives in you in a distinct way and then he blesses us and he sends us forth right Go in peace or go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like that. Go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Well, is the Mass over at that point when we say thanks be to God? No. What does Mass end with? The recession. Just like we have the procession that marks the beginning of the Mass, it's the recession out. this procession out of the church marks the end. Now, let's pay attention to what shows up at the end of Mass. Okay, well, wait a minute. Who's at the front of the line? The cross bearer, right? And who's at the the back of the line? The priest. Now, going in, the priest was giving the gesture of saying, we're walking towards heaven. We're walking towards heaven, Right? And in fact, what happens when we're at Mass? We touch heaven. We're drawn into the worship of heaven. We, through receiving communion, have a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, the heavenly wedding feast. In receiving Holy Communion, we're receiving a share in, a foretaste of heaven itself. And we're transformed into Jesus. But wait a minute, what does the recession now symbolize? Not we're walking towards heaven But rather, Jesus lives in us, and we are now going to walk out into the world. We who commune with Jesus, Jesus lives in us. Now we're going to be asked to walk out into the world, to go forth into the world and announce the gospel. But wait a minute, there's something missing. There's something missing in that procession that was there on the way in and it's not there on the way out. What is it? The book of the gospels. Why is the book of the gospels missing on the way out? Because you are now the book of the gospel. Jesus now lives in you. And Jesus is now going to proclaim his gospel in the world Through you. Go and be the gospel. You're going to be sent out into the world to proclaim the cross. You're going to go and be the gospel now that people are going to see. So that they can do what? They can be drawn into the community of faith as well. This is our mass. Walking through the mass. Step by step. I barely scratched the surface. Barely scratched the surface. Barely touched upon the different parts of the Mass. Every single line, every single prayer, every single part of the Mass could be explored more fully in its historical origins, in its historical development, in the use of certain language, in certain references to Scripture and why, in the fasts and the feasts of the liturgical seasons, in the different roles that are played by the different liturgical ministers, in the different theological meanings of these different aspects of things. There's so much more to say. But hopefully walking through the Mass as an event in which Jesus Christ shows up. And when he shows up in the event through the different elements of the Mass, we recognize his presence, his presence that asks us to make a response.